Thank you. It's so lovely to meet you. I'll just wait for the door to close. I always get, oh, sorry. You can talk. We don't have to, we're not recording yet. <laughs> it's all right. Go for it. <laughs> Hi, it's Tony Nash, and we are plugged and unplanned. And today is something special because we have Jodie Fox in the studio to talk about her new book and also about her career, her, her project of Shoes of Prey. And um, she is putting herself out there, or she has put herself out there because she's written a book about a business that was doing amazingly. And in the end, it didn't work out the way that she and the other founders had planned. So not everyone does that. So you've got to admit that's pretty bold. And I'm looking forward not to dive into any areas that we both feel uncomfortable with, but to, <laughs> as both CEOs and founders to explore some of the things that happen along the way building a company. I think we all want to learn about when things don't work out because that actually happens in all businesses. But what we can learn, and for anyone who's listening who is a CEO or a budding entrepreneur, you want to learn as many of the things that don't work and so, Jody, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And congrats on the book. It's been out for five weeks. Reboot. I'll give you the sub <laughs> subtitle. <laughs> Probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. Yeah, the, the subtitle there was a nod to the fact that the book is, is certainly about the professional path um, and what happened in the business. But you know when someone tells you, a bit more that's a bit deeper and sometimes you say oh sorry if this is too much information mm -hmm. so the book really does touch on a lot on that personal journey that we go through um, in the hope that we can create some conversations around that because I don't think my story is unique at all I think a lot of us go through these experiences and my hope is that we can create some collective wisdom by having a space to talk about those experiences. Mm. I mean, that is that is kind of the world that we in, are in today. If you think about people talking about mental health issues or I'm taking a mental health break, things that um, historically people never talked about because the it was like either stigma or don't go there. That's a subject that we don't talk about. They used to say at dinner parties, don't talk about religion. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's one of the – or politics. So it's kind of like um, – now it's not that it's um, the status quo, but when you do do it, for those of us who can hear someone else go through and share part of that part of the journey, it's very, very uh, reassuring and, and therefore um, you're not out there on your own. And so that's what you've done here with your book. That's certainly the hope. And, and so I've, just so everyone knows, she's just come in to the studio and she's been... Um, doing her own audio version of the book. <laughs> when you do, I think this is cu just mm. curious for all sure. of us because I do listen to audio books. When you read out your own book and you kind of go, like are you simply reading it because you're kind of in the moment and you're reading out the words or are you being brought back all the time to, to what was going on and the emotions or um, how's that for an author when you, when you do do that? It's, um, it's a combination of a couple of those things, actually. So for me, um, the experiences that I'm writing about in Reboot are still very fresh. So some of the parts of the book actually only happened in February of this year. So, you know, we're not talking about a huge amount of time that's passed between those, you know, really strong experiences and the book being published. So, yeah, it absolutely is a reliving of um, some of those experiences. And curiously enough, not just in the audio read, but in publishing the book, one of the things that I had failed to connect with, and I think sometimes you only, you learn these things through experience. Once the book left my hands <laughs> and went to the printing press was the moment that I realized other people would read this. Um, and I know that sounds quite ridiculous, but it was such a, a project that I, was in such depth with to 
create uh, and share, but realizing that would become other people's stories too, and that that would become something that would create, to some extent, some vulnerability around having just told the truth. Um, so those things are quite interesting. Uh, in terms of the times where you're just reading, uh, now that the book has been out for five weeks and I've, um, I sent it to the publisher in September, so I hadn't read it since sending it to the publisher, so this is my first read back. With that little bit of distance, um, the interesting thing is that I've been an avid reader my whole life and I would always think of texts as being very sacred <laughs> and reading these beautiful, timeless things. And what I've come to realise is that even between September and now, that's who I was then. And there are certainly things that have changed and evolved since then as well. So um, it's shifted my perspective a little bit on books in terms of understanding that's a snapshot in time. Um, but it certainly has created a kind of underline to the experience and a step to move forward from as well. So it's a combination of things that come up as you're doing that read. So it sounds very Scott Pape where the 2020 edition will come out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Wiley and I, uh, as I was writing, were having discussions about the next book. And, um, you know, of course, I feel that there needs to be another experience to get ready for a next book if there is going to be one. But... Yeah, in terms of new editions, gosh, as I've been doing the read, I've been thinking about, oh, I would change this here and I would tweak that there. And maybe, you know, earlier this year, I read the book, um, the Walter Isaacson book on Leonardo da Vinci. And I mean, what a tome of a book, but what an extraordinary book. And just to realise that even someone of his extraordinary genius never published anything for feeling that nothing was ever finished. And I think that's just a probably a condition of creativity and being human. Mm. So so you've, you can now, it's a two-pronged process because you're actually looking back on the book and what you would change. Mm. But then you're also looking at your career or, or the shoes of prey, you know, business. And you've already done that in terms of, well, we could probably do this differently or mm -hmm. do that differently. So um, you're... I mean, I know for myself, I've, I have been bankrupt. I, I sold my house. I put everything into my first company mm -hmm. and the dot-com crash happened. You're too young for that. <laughs> I don't know. I have really great moisturizer, so I might not be as young as you think. <laughs> In the, the early 2000, late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. we were still on dial-up modems, put it that way. Oh, I remember that noise. <laughs> yes. And so, so having had something fail mm. is is just the lessons that you, you have as part of being a better entrepreneur or business person or person. So I never see these things as, as like, well, that's it. I've proven that I cannot do it. Mm. It's I've, I've kind of worked out some of the things that didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And it, have you, I'm not going to give too much away when I do these, <laughs> these podcasts because guys, you got to go and buy this book. I mean, I, that's the whole purpose of, kind of having this chat. That's why we're here. We want you to buy, buy the book and read it. So it's about um, asking you, Jody, just you know, curious questions about, mm -hmm. about what happened in your business. So, sure. so when you reflect on Shoes of Prey, because that's done and dusted, mm -hmm. did you and your uh, former uh, founders and, and directors have you already been able to pinpoint some key things that you you know you wouldn't do again or in a different climate, maybe you're ahead of your time? or th what, what are some of those key takeaways as a, as a CEO? Yeah, look, I think that um, the biggest takeaway was only one that we could have discovered through experience. And the biggest takeaway is that Shoes of Prey could not cross into the mass market. And knowing that, had we known that at the beginning, it would have completely changed our approach to uh, funding, for example. So, you know, we went in with the data and the belief um, that this could cross into the mass market. We had really inexpensive customer acquisition we were profitable. Um, we had built 
a great team. Um, and we had also done the research with not just our audience, but going more broadly into people who we wanted to acquire as our customers to find out what those leverage points needed to be to cross that chasm, <laughs> to borrow from another yet another business book. Um, and yet all of those all of those indicators that we then translated into an action plan and a strategy for how we should go over into the mass market, none of those translated. And we believe that's because, or we understand from what we can see back in that experience, it's because designing your own shoes is wonderful for a niche market and overperforms in a niche market. And something that sits within a niche probably shouldn't be funded um, and does have a chance to grow sustainably and bootstrapped and all of that kind of thing. However, nobody could have known that <laughs> until we were sort of butting up against being able to make that transition. Um, of course, there are thousands of possibilities in terms of the different ways that we could have potentially pivoted the business. Um, we picked the two strongest uh, pivot options to try. And unfortunately, we were unable to prove them out with the stage of runway that we were at. Um, so I think those were probably, you know, a couple of those learnings that came out of Shoes of Prey. Mm. So, I mean, probably my most burning question. <laughs> yes. Or, and I don't ask this um, for those that are listening. And just to frame it up, uh, it's now December 2019, so who knows when you actually end up listening to this, so it's a certain snapshot in time, mm -hmm. is that Booktopia was built as an organic unfunded business there was no there was no money thrown in so um that's always my preference because yeah. you've kind of proven the model you've got to have a lot of patience um, you need cash coming in to be able to pay for everything so not all businesses have the chance of doing that but it is always my preference having never had the funding now we're coming up to 16 years how, this is really from me, so guys who are listening, it's just me asking the question now. How stressful or how, um, how do you feel like, oh my God, I've got to make that money work versus um, feeling like actually that's just part of the, it's just part of all the things that you have as your resources to get the job done. Do you feel like, we've really got to do this for our investors. We've, um, and then once you've kind of got to that first stage, it's kind of like being a NASA and trying to get a rocket out of the Earth's orbit. Oh my God, we now need that next one and we're here. How, how organic now, for you, organic versus funded, how do you feel about your options well, in the future? No, it's a great question. Um, and I have thought about this and put quite a bit of um, kind of contemplation into words in the book in that too. So look, I do think that both paths have their merit going for funding. And there, of course, are many, many, many versions of funding as well. So one thing that I'm noticing in the funding environment right now, or a couple of major shifts since, you know, the 10 years that we fundraised over, are that previously it was very much the founders kind of desperately courting <laughs> venture capitalists. And now that model is almost flipped the other way uh, where venture capitalists need to prove that they are good people to work with and that you would want to raise funds with them. So that, that power shift is definitely very interesting. And there seems to be an entirely new crop of venture capitalists who are, and this is the big difference for me, very focused on profitability. So traditionally, uh, in my experience of venture capital funding and speaking to other founders who have taken that on, um, you take the money on and you bring forward your spend effectively, right? You hire before you normally would based on your profits, you spend on marketing campaigns ahead of your profits, all of that kind of stuff. 
And so you are becoming deliberately unprofitable <laughs> to get those revenues up and grow into this massive company. Um, and that, that model is high risk, as we all know. Um, I th I've spoken to venture capitalists who have said that they expect a 70 to 90% failure rate. 90% um, is on the very high end of things, obviously. Um, but that percentage that does go through usually is, as you say, like an absolute rocket ship. And um, we all want to be that. <laughs> so I'd say there's been a few shifts in the landscape that make that venture capital model um, a little more aligned with where I would go in the future uh, with the company. Um, however, the really great thing about bootstrapping, and I strongly, strongly admire that you have bootstrapped this awesome company and just how unbelievable and safe and powerful is that because you get to make the decisions like okay it's not you know we will plateau in growth over certain years and that's okay and we are profitable so we know how to manage a plateau in growth that we plan for whereas um in vc land it's a it's a little bit different in terms of what when a slowdown growth rate looks like versus those high growth rates and what is expected in each of those areas. Um, so yeah, I think there have been some shifts that would make me entertain certain kind of invest investment structures. Um, but I certainly, if I had to <laughs> think about it right now, I mean, Shoes of Prey was bootstrapped for the first two and a half years. Um, we were profitable. We actually broke even two months into the business. So we certainly had all that sitting there and we intentionally chose to cast that die of going into the unprofitable and really trying to put that jet fuel into the business. Um, yeah, I think, you know, really so close to that experience right now, I would bootstrap again to kick off with and see how that unfolded and then maybe go for some of those more profit-focused venture capital, it, it depends on the business as well. I personally am very passionate about retail and fashion and the beauty space as well. And those spaces don't traditionally offer the kind of really significant year on year growth rates um, that say a software company might offer. Um, and knowing the high growth rates that most VCs are looking for, I'm not sure that that style of business would necessarily gel uh, with a traditional model. Yeah, I think that's one of the things um, when I do my keynote speaking, I talk about the first, so the first kind of golden nugget that I will talk about is that the quality, quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. And you can only ask better questions by being around longer to know what questions to ask because you had certain other experiences. So I think what I hear from you is is that if you are listening to this podcast and you're, th and you're thinking about reading Jody's book or you've read Jody's book, it's like, what, what are the great questions? If you're going to be um, put, putting out to tender, let's just call it that, even though it may not be in a formal process, to bring on VC or bring on some, some money that you can use, it's really going to come down to those questions that you want and like, so you now know what questions questions to ask. And you kind of alluded to them. So for someone who who is um, pure, pure profit or, or pure growth, no profit, um, pre-revenue, whatever, where are you up to? What are you looking for? If you put a dollar, I mean, one of the things for me is if you're going to put a dollar in, how much money do you want to get back for your dollar? Some totally. will say two, some will say three. In this time frame, oh no, I only get involved when it's 10. Or I don't get involved if it's profitable. Mm -hmm. I, I hear this, everyone has, everyone has a different mandate. Totally. And look, it's, it's very, um, in terms of the venture capital side, they absolutely have to have an extremely clear mandate to support the LPs that have put money into their fund. So, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to, be found be founder supportive, but also make sure that they are delivering on the business model that they have had people invest into as well. Um, 
But I do think that what you're saying is completely right. Determine what your values are and how you would run a business and how you want to see this unfold. And then then you go looking for that match for you if it is that you do need or want to raise funding against it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the, the questions I would ask now and what I've learnt absolutely <laughs> would be very different now. The other thing that I would premise, though, is just that the fundraising world is constantly changing as well. So what you need to have achieved to raise a seed round, a Series A, a Series B, has shifted enormously from when we first started fundraising. And so I think that um, you'll always need to have quite a few discussions to even understand what the market is and where you would fit at any given moment in time as well. So so when you were coming towards the latter part of, of Shoes of Prey, mm-hmm. um, was it, was there, was more funding actually not an option anymore um, because you were going to that next series of, like you just needed even more money or... Did you have the ability to scale back to just get back to organic profitability again? Could you, could, were you available? Was that an option for you? Yeah. So look, I was um, looking at all options and when you, just to address something earlier that really segues nicely into this as well, is that yes, when you take on money, you feel a huge amount of responsibility And um, part of that is, you know, really respecting the money that's come on board and sharing the information and making sure people understand what's progressing, why, and all of that kind of thing. So towards the end, uh, for me, it was about really making sure I had considered all optionality and provided as much optionality as possible for that investment to either turn around um, or to be closed in the correct way. Uh, so, yes, there were a lot of scaling back. There were, um, you know, we I froze all of our operations and ceased trade on the 28th of August 2018 and was then just having everything held in this frozen state to continue the conversations that were happening around our dual track process of funding or sale of the business um, and really pushed those in to their nth degrees <laughs> with all different kinds of industry people, um, so strategics, uh, with venture capital firms, with many, many, many discussions. And the issue is that um, timing is always challenging. You can't, there may be buyers who can see that actually that would be extraordinary for us, but it's just not what we're focused on right now. Or, you know, it, you know there, are, there are many, many things that come into play at that, that sort of stage. Mm. Um, and so for us, unluckily, um, none of those came off. So, so if I'm going to change tact a little here sure, go for it. because um, although I like the technicalities of being a CEO and capital raising and funding of businesses and having like that's very appealing to me the other thing about your book that I got an insight in is that you also share a lot about the emotional journey and that people need to understand that being a CEO or being a founder and taking an idea from inception through to making it real and bringing on people and having lots mm-hmm. of um, fans, be it customers, family, uh, <laughs> investors, yeah. um, even journalists, is that it's, it is very um, uh, emotionally taxing. I can talk on behalf of myself um, about this if you wish, uh, we don't need to go into your book. Um, but <laughs> Let's it, go into this together then, because it is a big topic and it's a, it is a really big part of the book. Mm. Um, 
as you said earlier, there was there has in the past been these very taboo conversations um, about and it, when it comes to business, you know we all we all want the strong leader and um, I I think that that is still the case, but we now have a different idea of what weakness is and is not. So sharing some of the human experiences that come with being a leader, particularly in a tough time, is not a weakness, it's a reality. And my hope is that sharing those realities is more conducive to people becoming, or all of us becoming better leaders in creating that collective wisdom. So, you know, I, I had heard you know, even before my experience in Shoes of Prey, a lot of the kind of um, general sentiment around being a leader, it's lonely. It's its really tough. You know, it's, um, you know, and talking about failing as well, you know, fail fast and we learn our best from our best lessons from failing. But the thing that I found in my experience of it is that there wasn't a lot that went deeper <laughs> and actually spelt out what that felt like. Um, and I don't by any means think that my book is unique in terms of the experiences that it talks about. The experience of what it's like to make someone redundant is awful no matter what size business you're in, no matter if you've done it before. Um, and really touching on the emotions that you go through and the experiences. Like I remember wanting to call the people <laughs> that I'd made redundant to see if I could help in any way. But of course that's totally inappropriate, but I'm sure I'm not the first person who's been a leader who's had to do that, who's had this sense of conflict at the end of it, knowing that the person you just made redundant has had a really awful experience day milestone in their life because of you. You know, so I think yeah, it's, and you're right when there's so many quite, there's a huge number of stakeholders that all have varying and valid interests in your business. Uh, whether it's press who have told your story over a period of time, you know, and there's, you know, sort of a sense of obligation to share even in the bad times too, which is fair. Um, there's also, yeah, your shareholders, your customers, your friends and family who are supporting you, <laughs> managing yourself through all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very complex machine. And it's not just having great heart HR strategies. Uh, it's really getting down into the knowing of each other and recognising each other as humans um, and bringing that emotional intelligence into what it takes for everyone to move forward through something that is really hard. And and the people that worked for you that have made were redundant mm -hmm. um, since the company folded. Did some of them reach out to you and say, I'm so sorry that that happened? Yeah, I mean... Because um, that's kind of mission accomplished then because even though you can't kind of... Um, mother, motherly kind of, are you okay? <laughs> uh, did you get a good job? I'm yeah. so pleased. Like, kind of like, even though you, you you said that you you didn't feel that that was the right thing to do, but obviously the instinct was just yeah. But they've there in now they've yeah. now come back and said, you know, that really sucks that that didn't happen, or I'm so sorry. I wish you the best. And yeah. and so, kind of says to me that you you kind of even though you didn't, but you must, have done it, you must have done it with a lot of grace or a lot of care um, when you were taking people through um, a, an exit like that. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> I'm actually still in touch with most of the people <laughs> that, I, that worked at Shoes of Prey um, in very fond and friendly circumstances. And if anything, I feel this amazing sense of awe at the stuff that they've gone on to do um whether it's seeing people start their own businesses now uh seeing you know the engineering team who are 
innovating with at car companies on what the future of transport is going to look like. It's just, it's really mind-blowing. And I feel very, very, very lucky that we created a culture in which it out-survived the failure of the company. I think all of us have those those kind of companies where you still stay in touch, mm. even though you've gone on to different careers. I have that when it comes to, I was a computer programmer in the mid eighties. I'm still in touch with some of the people that I work with. I was only a programmer for a couple of years because I was really crap at it. <laughs> and so, Ahead but, of your time, I think. I mean, come on, a program well, we that's actually, pretty cool. We had to actually write, I worked on Cockatoo Island for the dockyards. Wow. And so we had to write out our COBOL programs on a piece of paper, walk down the hill, <laughs> give them to the operators where they would key them in and then compile it and run it and then tell you all the errors and then you'd have to go back up and rewrite on the paper. The, oh, the, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, wow. You know, that was very early. ICL 2902s, I think we had there. So, But you have these companies that are part of your um, social history yeah. that everyone refers to. And even in the industry, we I didn't have much to do with Shoes of Prey in... Um, with Booktopia and running, I mean, Michael, um, your ex, um, and you talk about that in your book as well. I do. So my ex-co-founder and my ex-husband. Yes. (laughs) Everyone, it's this is a this is a romance business (laughs) breakup tragedy story. You get fiction. Well, you know, you get you get you get all truth actually. This sits in a lot of categories on our website. Like it's not just a business book. so, um, but Michael was our Google account manager in the beginning. Oh my goodness, I did um, not know that. Yeah, in the very before he set up She's a Prey, he managed our account. So. How extraordinary! Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny how we, I had always felt Booktopia in my orbit, um, but it's such a pleasure to sit down with you today. Mm. And um, I mean, I will always hear sort of resonating in the background Paul Greenberg's um, very high opinion of you as well so this is very cool to finally be sitting down <laughs> and you've written a book which we can sell plenty of even <laughs> well, better. I, I hear it's already sold out once already on the site so that's good that is what we want to hear that is what we want to hear um, so perhaps tactically again let's move back to operations sure um, the the expansion overseas I think a lot of people um, they'll read what you've, they've, they've, they're going to read what you've done, and mm-hmm. and you went overseas, and you had these little uh, stores within Nordstrom, mm-hmm. stores within stores. Yeah. Um, I've been with Booktopia very mindful of, about continuing to grow in the Australian market because I mean we're going to turn over around 160 million this year. That's amazing! Congratulations. And thank you. And but it's always kind of felt like well. We can get to 300 million, we can get to 500 million in Australia. So why go elsewhere when you can get from 20 million to 100 million here? Do you feel international expansion stretched you a little? Could have you done more locally and then come from a stronger base? How how did that, in retrospect, because you're going to start other businesses or you're going to run other businesses Mm -hmm. or whatever you're going to do next? And can is there any insight there in terms of for, for those that are listening and for me, what what you thought about that? Sure. So one of the important things is to sort of draw it to the original context, which is Shoes of Prey was always intended to be global. From day one, uh, we set out to be a pure play. We did go offline, as you mentioned, um, but we always had the view that we wanted the business to be global. Um, we were shipping to about a hundred different countries a month um, at sort of the sort of second half of the business, so the second five years. Um, and for us, when we were assessing growth opportunities within the company, you know, it was very easy to sort of see the data on where the organic growth was. Um, in addition to that, the vast majority of our funding for the business had come from the United States. And we were seeing a lot of strategic potential in the United States, especially with someone like Nordstrom coming on board as an investor and business partner. So there definitely was 
a mix of strategy and opportunism as well that drew us into moving into the US market in a more focused way. In reflection, um, yeah, we probably could have pushed more on the Australian market uh, before doing that global expansion, looking to that for a stage of next stage of scale. Um, however, just with those elements there, and then when you add up just the general elements, which are the size of the market, um, the uh, rate of adoption of new ideas, and particularly the huge level of comfort with shopping online and that kind of stuff, um, the US market does more like quite broadly make sense. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons, however, to take out of it is to really focus on one geography at a time. So we early on opened offices in Japan, Moscow, and uh, or Tokyo, Moscow, and in the Netherlands as well. And they all lived reasonably short lives because even though we had good people on the ground, it just really fragmented our focus significantly. Whether it was, you know, so when you push an update live to the site, did we get all the translations? Has it gone up correctly on all the other sites? How are we going in terms of our payment acceptance on those sites? Is the currency working in our favor or against us at the moment in each of those places? So it was, there were, there were a lot of things that were complicated. So I would say the one thing was, yes, focus on one geography at a time. I do believe that there is massive, massive amounts of growth um, to be tapped in the Australian market. And I remember very, very early on in Shoes of Prey looking at data that said that for Net-A-Porte and ASOS, when it was kind of, you know, really at its um, strength, um, Australia was the second biggest market. So despite the fact that we had, you know, a more spread out um, and smaller population than a lot of other uh, potential e-com markets, um, we were really overperforming. Um, so, yeah, I do think Australia is worth investing and growing in. Um, as a market on its own before focusing on other geographies. Mm, it just brings so many questions <laughs> to mind. Go for it. Um, <laughs> I, um, the first one I want to ask is getting capital on board mm-hmm. and having a plan to be able to still stay profitable mm. rather than... Um, which you said before that there are VCs out there now that want you to be profitable. But to a degree that means that you're not potentially using all the money that they've put in to drive the business forward. But that's kind of, that that kind of infers that you're a sustainable model. Yeah. Um, Is that, would that be one of the the things to consider in the future that if you're going to, if you're going to bring on, either debt or equity that you're you're still in a profitable state and could have you done that um we really so here's the super tricky thing about shoes of prey the data that we had and it was robust and we had done a huge amount of research and very robust strategy planning into what that was going to look like in execution um didn't give us a sense that we needed to it gave us the sense that we could hit that big model and have that huge uptick in sales that then would meet the unprofitability that we were having in the beginning to put that rocket fuel into the business so all of that planning okay so yeah maybe maybe this is worth addressing actually so when I say making the business unprofitable. It's kind of making it unprofitable for a period of time (laughs) Um, so that you can really have this big hockey stick growth that we all talk about (laughs) or hope for, (laughs) that hockey stick growth, at which stage your sales catch up with the amount that you spent to get there. Um, So there's this kind of, you know, big risk that happens in that and in the data and planning that we had made we felt that we would be able to make that that journey um alongside our investors and um you know a lot of really great people who came in and reviewed that with us um yeah so in the 
in that other version of events, you you don't take that risk. You keep the profitability chugging along underneath it and um, kind of take smaller steps, I guess, along that, that path of the jumps that you're taking to get to that place. So it just takes a little longer to get there. Um, with the benefit of hindsight <laughs> and hindsight alone, um, we didn't that we weren't able to make that full journey. Um, and yes, it would have been better to take the smaller profitable steps along the way. Yeah, so it sounds like you needed to have, I mean, in the future, when you're in the same situation and you're drawing on experience as well as the data, yeah. data is great, but you did talk about you didn't have a sense or you had a sense of that you'd get there. So that is your intuition, that is your gut feel. And totally. It, and it sounded like a lot of people did do that. But um, potentially it sounds like, well, rather than going so much into um, losses to kind of bottom out it, it doesn't matter if we break even. If we break even, at least we kind of getting towards the other side so we can look at the hockey stick then. Totally. Whereas you can on your journey to having the big growth and then hitting profitability you you do get these moments of being absolutely squeezed when you're when you can see the end of your runway coming and that's where you're looking to be like okay well have we shown that extraordinary percentage of revenue growth to justify more money coming in and of course then you know some of your investors may choose to tap out then and sell their equity to the next person coming in maybe you IPO maybe you get bought by private equity you know it's there are so many different versions of what that event can look like and it could it could be simply hitting profitability and keeping on growing at a much much faster scale than you might have got there if you um kind of done it bootstrapping or it could be um yeah returning the money from an ip by ipoing returning by a sale whatever that might look like so yeah there's a few different ways that can look mm. so i promised you before we started <laughs> um this when we spoke the other day that I would not put you in an uncomfortable position. I'm just letting sure. everyone know here um, because you have very tenderly written about um, something that didn't work out, which is not easy to do. Um, and and I think a lot of people are obviously going to appreciate you being as candidly honest as you can. But to add a bit of controversy, if I could. Oh, please, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Were there any investors mm -hmm. that kind of made you go in a different direction that you really didn't want to do but you they put in a lot of money and you kind of had to say yes um and you know if they were americans can we blame blame the yanks <laughs> right, is there something like can we just blame it on someone so everyone who's really pissed off that they can't get this you know their personally designed shoes anymore is because some american investor stuffed it all up for all of us <laughs> look um it's really interesting. So when the news came out that I was writing a book, um, there were a number of people who contacted me to ask who the villain was going to be. And I wish it was that simple um, because, you know, just like there's no silver bullet for marketing, there's no silver bullet for this equals sales. Um, there also isn't I mean, a silver bullet or a villain in Shoes of Prey. Uh, there were, were there things that we could have done better? 100%. On the whole, did we execute well a plan that felt and looked by all reasonable research um, and unreasonable research as well that <laughs> went into it looked strong? Absolutely. Um, but there isn't, there isn't someone to blame in this whole scenario. Um, I can talk about shitty things that happened until the cows come home. But again, I mean, I all of that would not serve anybody uh, other than kind of creating gossip. And I don't think that's so very folks, helpful. No controversy. <laughs> well, hey, there's lots of other controversial stuff in there. Uh, I mean, yeah. we could we could talk about divorcing your husband and keeping on working together if you like. We can talk about. I read about. The... I read that part of the book. I, <laughs> I know, and we'll leave that for the readers. Sure. Um, so, it's, but it is just interesting. Or people talk about you better be careful who you bring on because 
they could really force your hand and and the private equity firms are the ones that really don't care about you they don't care about your people they're just looking for that in and out so so you didn't have that kind of no. monster investor that no would. so what what we did have is so the venture capital guys that we worked with are wildly different to private equity so private equity really is like uh, from what I hear, um, anyway, I don't have personal experience in it, but it is very much that, okay, do it or we're cutting it. You know, very, very brutal, um, very, very ruthless. Uh, but that's also their business model as well. So, yeah, I, I do believe that that exists out there. Um, but, no, we didn't have that um, in our business. As um, Yeah, and also, too, like, I mean, just to give maybe – the emotional context on that as well and sort of thinking about that. So coming through the experience of Shoes of Prey um, and writing the book is has been the most vulnerable thing I've ever done in my life. And I know that from if I were listening to somebody else say, oh, it's really vulnerable, it's, you know, this sort of stuff, I'd be like, oh, but you wrote a book, that's so cool. Oh, but you did this business, that's cool. You know, but it, it, it's a very, um, it's actually kind of scary <laughs> uh, to have this much sitting out there in the world. Um, and what it truly made me appreciate is something that I started reading about at the beginning of the year, which is stoicism. Um, and really being able to step back from all of the big emotions, feelings of wanting to blame and stuff like that and looking at what the bigger picture actually is because that's where the real value is and that's where the best lessons are. Um, the reason that I give the detail of the emotional experience in the book is because I think that creates the bridge between the big overall lesson uh, and what it feels like day to day. And as entrepreneurs, we have to have that split in our brains between those two things because the vision that we're all aiming for is bloody beautiful <laughs> and huge and world-changing. Um, and when I say that, I don't just mean the people who are setting out to build unicorns. It might be world-changing for your community in having the best fruit shop that ever existed in X suburb. And you know what? I appreciate those people <laughs> because... Never more than now have I ever appreciated the fabric of community and how important that is. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, the, the way that it's taken a lot of processing to be able to answer a question like that without wanting to throw someone under the bus. <laughs> because, yeah, we, we do all want a villain. We do all want there to be a clean reason. But the truth is that life's an ecosystem. It's not how that works. It sounds very healthy, the way that you talk about it. And a villain or a monster is only a perspective. So totally, um, it's, what it sounds like is you actually you actually own you you own the the outcome and the success. So just on that, then and I don't know how much time we've got another ten minutes or so. Um, the the idea of having that funding mm -hmm. and like I remember in the beginning with Booktopia, you'd go to a uh, you know party or a barbecue or somewhere and. You, you know, who's, you know, who's who? Who are you, and or where do you work? And Booktopia, what is that? It's a, well, it's an online bookstore. Now, of course, most of the time, people know who you are. Not always. I still meet people who have never heard of us. The uh, so that organic kind of permeating through the market and becoming a household name um, takes time but you kind of earned it over time. When you get that money coming through and quickly people are talking about you and you're getting be, becoming a household name um, very, very quickly, which is what happened with shoes. You lot, won a lot of awards mm -hmm. early on as well. Mm -hmm. So the money was being put to good use in terms of how your website operated and what you were accomplishing. Uh, how, like the reality versus versus the illusion was there a big gap quite often? Did you feel did you feel like an imposter or did you feel like um, you were making it happen because more and more people were finding about you so we're on track? How, how did you deal with and how did you and the other founders and your team deal with all of that? So um, 
Firstly, I never did and still don't connect with the idea of the business or us being a household name. (laughs) And I always through the entire journey of the business would always have like a little flourish of joy when I introduced myself and somebody had heard of Shoes of Prey. It just that never, ever, ever left me. I think my expectations on that um, and awareness of that were um, nil, (laughs) if that makes sense. So um, even today, uh, having moved back to Australia just five weeks ago, um, and being in an environment, seeing the way that the book is being received, um, people talking to me about um, what they saw of Shoes of Prey and how it became a part of their story or experience um, has been unbelievably humbling and also something that I would otherwise never be aware of because you're right, that's the illusion, I think, is the idea that that we knew that <laughs> and that we were walking around feeling like everything was sparkly and you know oh yeah that's all all in all what we're doing you know this is great of course we're exactly that absolutely not like I was you know what when we got our first office I was the cleaner like you know (laughs) and you know when we like you just get in and do what needs to be done you I didn't ever really connect with or think about the illusion or the story that was being built around it that much um I know that I felt very lucky when I got to do cool things that connected with work like I did get to travel a lot um I did get to go to fashion shows um in saying that you know when you're working with designers and making sure everything's right for the fashion shows it's very different to turning up and sitting in the front row (laughs) which I know a lot of people who are doing that are bloggers and journalists who are working really hard too but um, yeah, it's it's there was a lot of luck in all of that. But I think we were so focused on what we needed to build and what we needed to do next that um, maybe I wasn't present enough in some of those cool, like really cool moments as well. And so the glamour that kind of sat with it or the illusion that sat around it was never something that I really focused on or thought about even until, you know, today. Because <laughs> one of the things that I talk about in my in my speaking is about the fact that you are not your business your business is your business and when the business wins the awards it's the business winning the award not you yes and so i think it's an important i think i don't know how much you touch on it here or how much people can read because there's a lot to um read through and and consider as they read your book but i just want to re-emphasize because I kind of get the sense that you can write this book because of this kind of mindset, is that when you when you separate yourself from the business, that's very, very healthy because your ego is not the business. You hear these stories when someone retires and they had a very, very important position as CEO and no, they no longer can introduce themselves as the CEO of Ford or the yep. CEO of... of Apple or, or whoever it may, you you you're the ex CEO of that company actually, and there's a now there's another CEO. So to be able to um, make sure that that you you realize it's not you. So then to come to this point, to them to be able to write it, and then to be able to grieve the loss or the ending of that business and new beginnings. But you can imagine perhaps others who may have been in your position who were so um, egotistically connected in their identity in having a well-known, successful, talked-about company um, that was shipping to 100 countries, ticking all the boxes. I think it's a really important thing for the readers of your book and whoever's listening to this podcast whether you're working for someone else or whether you have your own company, it's just to be able to consider to let go of that so you, ha- you, you, can, you can be 
first of all, you can be more real with what actually is going on, but also to be able to be more resourceful for yourself and for those that you're working with and for the company that you serve. Yeah, I mean, I would still say that I did struggle with my identity when the company ceased trading. Mm -hmm. So um, you're totally right. And the, the example that you drew on is something I experienced where what where I really had to go through and figure out who am I if I am not. Um, and I, I do think I didn't make enough space in my life when I was working on Shoes of Prey for life to exist and evolve outside of that. And that is a huge lesson that I will absolutely take into whatever I do next. Um, the moment of walking into a room and, hi, I'm Jodie Fox, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and, then, and then you have the opportunity to think about what does that sentence look like? Oh, I'm just exiting my company. Bullshit. Okay. Hi, I'm Jodie Fox. Yep, I'm closing this company that I worked on for 10 years, writing a book about it and looking for what's next. It's okay. You know, and it took me a long time to get a sentence like that out. Mm. Um, but I can relate to that identity question mark because you know a lot of a lot of ourselves and our um sort of discourse of social engagement is connected to what we do in our careers um and as you were saying at the beginning as well there's lots of taboo things we don't like you know when it's supposed to talk about religion and, <laughs> and politics and all of these sorts of things but actually that's where the real stuff is. So as soon as we have the courage to, and it is a journey and it has been a journey to have the guts to put that down and say, I don't know, these are some great things that I experienced and some tough things I experienced. Right now I'm looking to figure out. Definitely a very, again, humbling experience to go through. Um, but one that I'm not sure. I, look, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, by nature, am, will only accept the truth um, and will only look for the truth. Otherwise, I find it very difficult to move forward. So for me, that was in something I couldn't circumvent. Um, and it's a, an important time of, tra time of transition because if I don't transition, whatever I do next will be a repetition of some of the things that didn't go well and I think that you're right in what you have said to kick off this particular question which is that awareness that there is more than your identity attached to a business is going to serve you endlessly mm. I mean you are not your book no no you are not <laughs> you are not your next venture and and I, th I think booktopia has but succeeded by by the input of many many people, of course. But from my own personal part of that, by having separation between myself, my ego, and Booktopia, mm. that has actually served the company very well. Because if I truly went on my own personal values and beliefs and said, "Look, actually, I'm not sure whether I'm good enough," which is somewhere maybe it doesn't appear that obvious today but certainly it's from my school days and my 20s I would imagine that that was very much a part of my psyche and my belief system so all the values that I have around myself and how I believe who I am and and whether I'm good enough whether I'm successful enough whether I can act as the CEO all those things those beliefs about me have kind of they've just stayed with me versus being uh, transposed onto the company, which then mm -hmm. become these glass ceilings that you can't work out why you can continue to break through. So I think what I'm saying is it's, it's probably more of a share from Booktopia and myself and, and for those that are listening about why, um, it, why or how has Booktopia continued to grow without funding for so long. And that, that is definitely one of them. And I'm, I'm happy to share that with, you know, with everyone today. I do... And our time is 
coming to a close, <laughs> which really sucks because this is such a great conversation. It is. And what you just said is extraordinary as mm. well. And I think so important for founders of every stage to hear. I mean, that really lands strongly with me as well. Thanks. So just to get it out in the open and clear, yes. I don't want to have any defamation cases or he said, she said. Oh, gosh, what's this going to be? It's like, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't just you that was running the company. No, no. There it was... was there was three of you that founded it and kind yeah. of got things moving. But now you've written the book. And so is there a bit of, hold on a second, I should have written the book. That you, <laughs> you shouldn't have written the book. I, it, so how did you guys, have you already come to agreement with the, the, the other co-founders about that and, and that this is, you know, this is your story, it's not their story? Um, they wouldn't have said that. That was your view. Have you? Did you kind of had to c clear any of that up before you w wrote wrote your book? Look, some of it, yeah. I mean, and particularly, so Michael, my ex husband, and his wife Katrine, I shared with them the chapters, particularly that related to them or talking about the divorce, because you know, I there's do no harm is definitely <laughs> a really um, important value for me but that can that isn't mutually exclusive to telling the truth in fact it goes hand in hand so yes there was absolutely sharing that went on in the lead up to the book being published um, it's also why the book is um, it, you know is so clearly my experience and point of view I didn't ever want to put words into other people's mouths or to, you know, colour um, anything that we built in the business with something that was, you know, when, whenever you get up to give a speech, like whenever you go to, whenever or whenever I get up to give a speech, one of the first things that I'll talk about is the fact that I'm here to share my experiences and the way things unfolded for me. This is not a textbook. This is not a list of the things you should do that have, you know, life's just not like that. So that's why, for me, the voice of the book and the content in there had to be so truly from my own experience of what happened um, and also one that didn't seek to cast villains <laughs> because neither of those things, going outside of those two things, um, wouldn't have created anything that was particularly useful, to be honest. Mm. So everything is okay? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I have had contact no with both of my co-founders since the book has published. Right. So and it's all It's not going to be fine. some withdrawal or our, <laughs> our customers are going to have to send back the book because that's so, that's so good to hear. So I think... In, <laughs> Wait, that happens? Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it does happen. Gosh. Um, maybe people don't send it back, but there was certainly one about Eddie Obeed a number of years ago which got, got into a lot of trouble. Gosh. The, um, I think in closing, I th I'd like to just touch on one point, and it's sure. very relevant to the era that we're in, uh, moving into the 2020s and beyond, is women now um, really stepping into their well they always have stepped but there's there's this there's this gap that's being created for women to to really step into their power and i'm really privileged to be in the um, e-commerce industry where if i look around at a lot of the ceos and founders so many of them are women and so many of them are doing amazing things with their businesses mm -hmm. um, which is really 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 inspiring and um okay i'm a bloke and i'm in business with my brother and brother-in-law so we're not one of those kind of companies that's okay unfortunately but um women have certainly had some very strategic leadership roles within our organization to make it the company that it is for sure but for those that are considering buying buying 
your book. Um, men and women, obviously, it's important for both because it's about entrepreneurship, it's about things working and not working, etc. But for women right now to have as many role models, as many um, people stepping up to the plate and, and giving it a go, um, congratulations on doing what you've done on behalf of all uh, the women in particular in our industry of e-commerce, which is just smashing it in so many ways. Um, and I hope that um, many women get to read your book and be inspired to um, start their own company, give it a go, join a company that's doing amazing things. Is there anything before we close, Jody, that you want to share with us in closing? <laughs> anything else? Well, firstly, thank you for saying that. That's um, certainly very heartening. Um, I think the last... The one thing that I want to say is that in the book, I um, included a quote within one of the sections. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening will know it. It's the quote from Theodore Roosevelt about the, called The Critic and about the real hero being the person who's in the arena, falling in the dust, getting up, trying again. And I know it might be cheesy, <laughs> But that's the truth of being an entrepreneur. And it's tough and it's messy and it's dirty. But it's just one of the fullest ways to experience life, to be really in there, just giving it a red hot go. So um, if anyone's listening who hasn't read it, please go seek it out. It's a quote that I'm sure will resonate um, for those that have read it but don't remember its entirety go pick it up again. Um, it'll serve you on good days and it'll serve you on tough days. And just, I admire anyone who is in there doing that. Great way to finish. Jody. thank you so much for coming in and being on Plugged and Unplanned. And on behalf of all the listeners, we look forward to hearing the second book, <laughs> the next volume, the, the second book in the trilogy. <laughs> Gosh, trilogy now. <laughs> Thanks um, for having me. Congratulations and we wish you all the well in the future. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.